Welcome to the Warrior Goddess Revolution, a podcast dedicated to helping you get free, free of shame, free of fear, free of limitations, and free to become the woman you are meant to be. Let the inner revolution begin. Here's your host, Heather Ash Amara. Welcome everyone back to Warrior Goddess Revolution. And I was just laughing with my friend Betsy of like, if I didn't read people's bios, I'd be like, this is my friend Betsy, we're going in. So let me read her bio and then I will introduce her to you. So Betsy is the award-winning filmmaker, best-selling author, changemaker, mom, best known as a co-writer, director, and producer of the hit film, What the Bleep Do We Know? Her new book out March 2021, yay, is Killing Buddha. And I'm excited to talk about Killing Buddha because we've been on a journey with that one for a while, I know. She has also produced the award-winning Song of the New Earth, Pregnant in America, Radical Dating, and The Empty Womb. She has authored multiple books, including the documentary Filmmaking Masterclass, Tipping Sacred Cows, and What the Bleep Do We Know? Discovering the Endless Possibilities to Altering Your Everyday Reality. In addition to several best-selling self-help compilation books, she also enjoys consulting with multiple clients to develop multimedia content for worldwide distribution. Okay, so now you know a little tiny bit about Betsy. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, hon. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get our warrior goddess on, shall we? Absolutely. <laughs> and let's kill some Buddhas while we're at it. <laughs> so I love starting out in a very violent way, but that's okay. It's that's good. okay. It's they they will good. understand soon. Yeah. So I love this because because you and I were in similar circles, like orbiting around each other for decades, maybe. <laughs> it feels like it. And um, one day I was going to be in Ojai, I guess it was two years, it seems like 400 years ago, but a couple years ago, I was in Ojai for a book launch and I just randomly wrote on Facebook, hey, anybody want to drive me from Los Angeles to Ojai and back again? And Betsy was like, me. And that was such an epic road trip. It was. was. And you were working on Killing Buddha then. so I I was. I was. And I thought... Oh my God, I get to spend two hours or two and a half hours in a car with, with the warrior goddess herself. I'm doing that. Like, sign me up. So great. Yeah, it was. And I was, I was just, I think I had just gotten back from my crazy adventure into South America with my children where I wrote most of Killing Buddha and uh, was finishing it up. Uh, as we were driving on that wonderful um, afternoon, I was just finishing up. I I wrote most of it in Ecuador and Mexico. Um, I decided I'd had something happen that kind of was soul killing. I don't like to say the word soul killing, but it was, it was really sad for me. And I just got really disillusioned with everything that I was doing in the world, which seems to happen to me like every decade. Like I have some sort of like, I like right around 39, 49, um, um, you know, big shifts start to occur. And um, I sold everything and was going to just move to South America with my children. And, and as I was leaving my friend, cause killing Buddha was going to be a movie a long time ago and we had it set up. And then the lead actress ended up having to 
go into rehab basically. So the whole thing fell apart, which is when you just learn to put everything away. And um, so he said, the reason he said, you need to write that into a book, into a novel, because that's what it is. This is really in many ways, your story. You've made it this character, you've made it a novel, but in so many ways, it's your story. And I was like, I can't write a novel. I, I could never do that. You know, it's such a, undertaking and he says well you're going to south america you're going to do something while you're sitting in the jungle so i started writing and then several months in my kids were like mom okay we've done the jungle we're ready to go back to like civilization again please and so i said okay and i came back here to the u.s but reinvigorated on clarity of what i was supposed to be doing in the world um, for me and uh, finished killing buddha and then the pandemic hit and I was offered some publishing deals, but everything was so slow. I mean, if I had taken those deals, Killing Buddha wouldn't have been published for another two years. And so I just said, I'm doing it myself. And here you go. Here it is. Yay. And it is such a great book. So I wanted to Thank read. You. This is the, the little blurb and then we can talk about your perspective on it, but Killing Buddha is a laser sharp journey through the phony love and light dogma of the personal growth world and the many, but not all, spurious teachers of self-help. The heroine, Sarah, is lovable, relatable, perfectly imperfect, as well as funny as hell, scathing, snarky, and ultimately totally authentic. So we know that Sarah, the character Sarah, Sarah is based on parts of your life, parts woven in, mm -hmm. but how did you get here? So <clears throat> it's a kind of a long convoluted story. My journey into this space, into the world of self-help and spiritual seeking um, started with the bleep. Before the bleep, I had never even, I, I didn't even, you know, do it. I cared about my shoes. That was really about it. You know, that was my, that was a spiritual moment for me was when I could find a good pair of shoes. And so here I end up on this movie and I end up making this movie and directing and writing and producing and, and it becomes this ginormous success. And for like 10 years, I just rode that wave and was awesome. You know, I was the bleep girl and I would, you know, friggin' opening for Deepak. I mean, it was insane, right? You know, it always sort of struck me as odd that I would be asked on stage or put on stage to talk about how to be spiritual or how to be enlightened or, or you know, how, you know, consciousness works. And I was like, just really just like a white girl from the valley, you know, who like made a movie. And, um, so I rode that wave for like 10 years and then uh, everything in my life completely fell apart. Uh, I got divorced. I lost everything. And that was when um, my first book, Tipping Sacred Cows, started. And, and all of my books, even Killing Buddha, everything that I work on really is me just trying to understand how we live in this world and how it works and how to find peace. And so I was so confused when my life fell apart because I thought, well, I create my reality and I'm a master law of attraction manifester and more crystals fly out of my ass. What the, what, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going broke and I'm getting to like, right. So I had to take a moment where I, I just really threw away everything and said, I need to start over. And so tipping cake, sacred cows is really an exploration of 
what is what does it mean to be spiritual? What are my own personal sacred cows? And what are sacred cows within the mind, body, spirit space? And and how are we taking these really important deep concepts and then just sort of breaking them down to easy, digestible little, you know, 132 characters, things that, you know, here, do this three times a day and you'll be rich, you know? And so that was the beginning of this journey of killing Buddha because the reason it was so important that it come out now was because it seems like now so much of what is really supposed to be a personal, deeply introspective journey that is not something we wear and we promote and we talk about has become like, leave it to the West and make it a romance novel about ourselves. Right. And I just started to look at the the sort of like McDonaldization of this really important thing that we're supposed to be doing, which is doing the work on ourselves. And um, it's just a commodity. It's a, it's capitalism run amok. It's funny to think that in this space, for so many people who want to bash big pharma and bash capitalism and bash all those stuff. Uh, hello, look in the mirror people. And so I also like to laugh and be funny. And I think there's a, there's a use humor because it's a real deep story about me trying to find my own like existence here in a comfortable way. And that I feel really good about while also having a lot of fun with what we do in the name of seeking enlightenment. Um, and so the character, and it's based on not really a little bit about bleep. It, it's a, the character Sarah is the movie producer. A lot of what happens to talk Sarah talks about is very true. You know, she goes on a journey, she gets hired to make a movie about spirituality and they go on this journey and through these different characters that they meet, I hope that the reader has a chance to one kind of have like you could either read this book having been doing this stuff for 40 years and laugh because nothing that I write about in the book everything that I've written in the book is something I've been to and done and a lot of people say that have been in it for 40 years oh my god you know you you wrote this with such humor and such truth that I could laugh at it it wasn't mean-spirited because it's true and sometimes you have to be willing to laugh the true or you could look at it as a newbie to offer some ways in which we might find some discernment you know, because that's really what's lacking right now in, in, in the world is discernment. Absolutely. So true. And I, I wanted to give the, that book to like all of my students and all of my friends and my peers. And like, if you don't find this funny, why? Because we have to be able to laugh at ourselves. Yeah. We must be able to. And that's what allows us to discern really is to not take ourselves so seriously. And you know, I could imagine having been thrown into the spiritual world as you were, and especially Los Angeles, like that whole, the whole meme of spirituality in Los Angeles. Sometimes, you know, I, being from kind of middle of nowhere, New Mexico, sometimes it shocks me what is out in the world. I don't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember going to Instagram and watching, you know, some videos of somebody who's this huge influencer and like, Really? really? This is what people are drawn to? Huh. Okay. (laughs) Well, because it's easy. I think we're so friggin' exhausted for one thing, you know, that we just want, like, I mean, we just want someone to wake up and go, okay, tell me what to do so that I can be happy. 
And I, I, I really feel that. And I, and on so many levels, I agree. I wish somebody would just, you know, say, Oh, here, do this. And then it works. Right. But that's not what we're here for. You know, that's not what this journey is about. And when you get to a place where you realize, Oh, there is no ending. Uh, there's no end game. I'm never going to get anywhere. All I've got to do is be disciplined and consistent in practicing things that work to keep me calm and keep me in a space of peace and use my brain. I mean, a lot of people, you know, especially in the spiritual world, it's like, oh, get out of your brain. Uh, Maybe get in it just a little bit. Like, you know, because, all right, I get that we all heart and intuition, but too many people are running around telling me that our intuition told them. And you know what? Sometimes your intuition is wrong which is why we have a brain. It's crazy. So that's what part of this journey is, is saying, God, you know, I'm, I'm actually can read and I can discern and I can look at something and go, okay, I'm not going to spend $5,000 to go to this wealth manage, wealth retreat in Costa Rica, because if I have $5,000 to go to a wealth retreat in Costa Rica, then I don't need a wealth retreat in Costa Rica. You know, I mean, it's just, you have to look at it and go, some of the stuff is just not making sense. There's real work to be done and there are real people like, like you who, who really do the deep work. And then there's this quick fix and that's what people are looking for. And when we finally convince people, guess what? There's no quick fix. Then, then the discernment comes back in. Yeah. And I think so many of us start at the quick fix. I mean, I know I started there and I think that that's like the entry, the the gateway drug, (laughs) right? It is. There is a quick fix. If you just do these five things and then you do the five things and you're like, well, that helped a little bit maybe, but then you start to realize, hopefully you mature as you're in the journey and you start to recognize, oh, wait a minute, there isn't a quick fix. And anybody who's saying there's a quick fix, it's not true. Yeah. It isn't true. And, and it's important because the other thing that I feel like one of the things I hope people get from the book is there's nothing wrong with you. Like you're not broken. You're not some broken being that this thing is going to fix you, you know? And, and so when I realized that I was writing tipping sacred cows, I realized like, I'm not broken. I just have some bad habits that I learned And I can change those. All the guilt and shame of feeling like a failure or feeling bad that, you know, here I am a single mom, I got divorced, blah, blah. A lot of that went away because I realized I stopped blaming myself. And there's a lot of blame and shame in the new age, new thought movement based around your, you know, don't you want the perfect healthy body? Don't you want the perfect healthy mind? Don't you want the perfect healthy relationship? And it's perfect, healthy, perfect, wonderful, perfect. And none of that really exists. And when you can get down to the reality of like, you know, life is this crazy adventure that we're on. This is the plane of, I call this the plane of experience. And it's like a game. And we got these senses, you know, we touch, we taste, we smell, we hear, we've got extra ones if we learn how to use them. And if we don't, that's okay. And we're here to do that. And I I realized that for me, getting grounded in my body and getting grounded in my reality helped me be better, get better at accepting it, shifting it, making it better and being in it as opposed to constantly trying to, I need to get out. I need to astral plane. I need to do all those things. Those are just escape tools, basically. And it's so interesting because what the bleep do we know was such a runaway 
surprise. And I remember being loving the movie, thinking it was brilliant and breathtaking. And now we look back at it and it's like, oh, great message. And also a lot of harm came because it got, like you said, watered down to all you have to do is just think good thoughts. And if you're doing it right, and this is where I see the law of attraction piece, people using it against themselves and other people, because we're so fundamentally in a punishment reward. If Mm -hmm. I do it right, then everything should go exactly how I think it's supposed to go. And if I'm doing it wrong, then things are going wrong. Well, and let me say this. I look back at the bleep now and I, actually a lot of the stuff in the bleep that we were told was wrong is actually right. Cause we used a lot of science. We focused a lot on behavioral science and quantum physics and a lot of it's been proven to be true. What I think happened with the bleep was it, it blew up the conversation so loud that everybody's came in and I, I'm not a big fan of the secret. If anybody ever saw the original secret that had, um, Hick, Esther Hicks in it and the real depth of what the law of attraction really meant. That was a totally different movie than what The Secret became. And that was sort of, <clears throat> then everybody and their brothers making movies about how, you know, I was a poor child living in my car and now I'm a billionaire and all I did was write a check and stick it on the wall and it's magic. And so I think that, I think with the bleep, we tried to give it depth. We tried really, I mean, you can't do much in a 90 minute movie. And I, I even, you know, gives the secret some credit for that. And that it's a 90 minute movie. There's a you got to, these are deep concepts, but I think we're at a place now where, you know, we have to look back and say, okay, everybody, we need to slow the roll a little bit because people really are mindfulness, meditation, all of these things are becoming sort of more mainstream now. And if we don't like grab the reins of it and say, okay, we're going to do this. Let's do this ethically and with integrity. Let's, you know, let's not, you know, sell, you know, this crystal is going to change your life and not give any depth about what the heck that even means. You know, the, how, then we've got a problem and that's kind of where killing good is super funny. And, but at its core, it, it, it really takes you on a journey of like, you can do all of this stuff and still never get enlightened because enlightenment doesn't have anything to do with that external thing that you're doing. It, enlightenment simply means that to know yourself and that's the work you're doing here. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think, and this is like the last bleep thought is the whole work, like so many, like you said, so many of the scientific principles that were brought up there that at the time were even like, is this real science or now like science? Like it's been proven beyond a doubt. A lot of the pieces around emotions, around yeah. consciousness. So it's really exciting. And I love that you've continued your journey And that that place, I think so many of us hit that place of a divorce or our lives falling apart. I know I had the exact same thing where my life was great and then it was really hard. And now I am so grateful. Yeah. So grateful because that brought the depth in. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I have two kids and I'm constantly... They're, they're so fast with everything going on and the information. And, and, you know, my son will come to me and say, Oh, I saw this on TikTok," And then he knows now to go, I need to do more research on it. 
I need to really check in on this. And, and I said, you know, there's gotta be some rigor in what you're doing in this world. You know, it's not my, you know, my daughter's, you know, really into the law of attraction crystals and everything. And it's like, she'll have a crystal. So what is that? Tell me about that. Where'd you get it? What is it for? What does it mean? What's the depth of the story behind it? And she can start to tell me because it's like, look, you've got to have the depth, you know, that's where the aha, the cool, juicy aha moments come anyway. When you have a realization of like, when you really sit and take the time to contemplate and, and read and listen, you, when you get those real big aha moments, not the fake that the ones, but the real, like your whole, you can feel it. Your cell, your cellular makeup shifts. It really does when you do that work. And for me, that's what's most important in our world right now is when we can all go, we got to do some work, you know, and these, and these are uncomfortable conversations to have. Um, and I don't fault anybody for making money, but I want to make sure that we're doing it in integrity, you know, that we're taking care of people. People are traumatized and there's a lot of pain in this world. And, you know, I'm not going to sit around and tell somebody I'm an empath and I can feel your emotions and blah, 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 and do all this stuff with you if I'm not healed myself. You know, it's not for my place to do. And I think we have to be very careful about that in this world because we want to, we do want to heal it. We've got great, beautiful little beings coming up. You know, we want to make sure they've got a place to, to do it from. Absolutely. And sometimes I think that part of what the, when I'm always looking at myself and, and reevaluating and in my teaching is the place that you talked about of do, am I putting out any, mm, any tendrils of you're broken and I've got what it takes to fix you. Yeah. And where are the places inside of myself that I still can fall into, Oh, I'm broken or I have to, get something outside of myself to fix this or I have to be perfect. That's the danger mm -hmm. really for yeah. somebody that's in a, a position that's teaching or mentoring is that I have to be perfect and therefore I have to squish all my own fears, insecurities, wounding down. Uh, and I just always remind all like we're all on a journey together. Yeah. We're all. Well, that's why I never wanted to be considered a guru or a teacher. You know, for that reason, because I'm like, I, I suck at this shit. Like I, every day I screw it up. I'm like, you know, and I don't ever want to, one of the things that we tend to do is we meet someone and they give us a piece of wisdom. And then all of a sudden we give our power away to them. Um, now they're genius and they're perfect. And they're all these things because they gave us a piece of wisdom. And then when they screw it up, oftentimes we throw out that piece of wisdom because now we're mad at them because they weren't perfect when in reality they just gave you a piece of wisdom you know my cat gives me a piece of wisdom like eight times a day and okay i do put him up on a pedestal that's true but that's because he demands it but <laughs> but you know i mean we have to we have to start putting things into perspective and going wow this person just gave me a piece of wisdom that doesn't make him a god it doesn't make him you know that, that i should give all my money to and throw my life away for you know because they gave me this piece of wisdom and you were able to accept the piece of wisdom because you already have it inside of you. So you recognize it. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, thank you. you. Thank you for bringing that out of me. Awesome. Cool. Next. 
you know? Yeah, exactly. And do you think like the kids are coming in differently that there was, you know, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, it was all about the guru and the guru was way removed and we were all inferior. And then there was the perfect and then 70s, 80s, that started shifting slightly, but it shifted into now there's the spiritual teachers and there was still the guru on top of it. But I feel like that's getting happily dismantled. Right. Well, think about it like this. I know people don't like to think about it like this, but the the reality is spirituality is no different than Christianity or Catholicism. It's all, it's, uh, there's a hierarchy. And if you look at, you know, any sort of group or organization, you know, they structure exactly like any other church does, right? There's a pastor, there's a teacher at top, and then there's you have to get certified and trained and there's different levels and then there's the regular people. Um, and that's very much the same as only I can talk to God. You know, a lot of these bigger groups, some of them, you know, only I will teach you this. Only I will tell you it this way. I'm the master at doing it this way. And now everybody wants to be a master and now you can be a Reiki master in a weekend if you want. Like apparently you just buy that and you know, now I can heal you. Because everybody wants that mastership, right? But I think that, because, especially in the last year, when like, so people love to be right and they like to know and they like to know where they stand. So it's easy to get into a group and go, okay, that's the leader. I'm the follower. I'll keep doing the work. And there's a safety in that, right? And then last year, our entire worldview got flipped on its head. So we had a moment to go like, you know, have you ever been on a roller coaster where you feel like you're kind of like floating for a second? You have, you can't grasp anything. You're just like, right. That's what a lot of people felt like. And they're coming out the other end. And I do, I do get this sense that they're kind of done with the guru on the stage. They're tired of being lectured to, and they want some real truth and they want authenticity and they want actual connection with other people that are in alignment with them. And, and that, that is what's, I think, bubbling up now is authentic, true connection with another person Um, and not this toxic positivity and not this, like the sort of fakeness of I'm a Wiccan, I'm a pagan, I got crystals, I can, you know, all that stuff is just sort of doesn't, there's no depth in it. And you can see that. I'm not saying the crystals are bad, by the way, or any of that. I'm just saying that, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm, I was doing an interview the other day and I was talking to a girl. We were talking about cultural appropriation and uh, it's, it's an interesting, delicate conversation to have, especially within the mind, body, spirit world, because there's a lot of cultural appropriation going on. Right. But, but you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? It's kind of like yoga's out, right? Like if you can't say, no, forget it. No, you can't do it. Like it's too, too late. So what's the, um, so what are some ways in which we can really go back and examine how do we do this right? And she said something to me, she said, you know, if you've got like, if you do yoga or you meditate or you are, you know, got a, Ganesha in your house and you're not screaming at the top of your lungs about what's happening in India right now, that's cultural appropriation. Like, so we have to get like, these are the things that we have to start doing. That's where the depth is to go, gosh, you know, I have a Ganesha, I have an altar 
every morning, you know, I pray for Indy. I, I can't give them money. I can't give them what, I mean, I wish I could, can't give them what they need, but I can at least in my morning practice, which is derived from India, which is derived from ancient, you know, Asia is to go, thank you. And what can we do to support you now? So those are the kinds of things that you don't get when you just go, look, I got this crystal, you know, or whatever. Like those are the teachings we need to really give people. Yeah. And I love that you're teaching that to your kids and asking, like inviting them, go deeper, go deeper. And it's the same thing with all of us. Go deeper. It's not that the practice is bad. Mm -mm. It's that do you have the understanding and the context of where it came from? Who's connected to it still? What happened to get it to you? Yeah. And I love that. And that, that mindfulness of give back. Well, we all, if we truly believe that we're all connected and we're all one, if that's the truth, then we have to act in that way all the time. And it's not, I mean, you know, we can't always do it, but to me, that's kind of like the growth that I've done over the last five years. Cause for sure, like, you know, I've worn the crystal necklaces and the, 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 and the I mean, I've done it. Right. But I just think, you know, for me in the last five years, as I was, finishing tipping sacred cows and, and starting on killing Buddha, I realized like, well, what does all this really mean to me? And what does it really mean to the reality that I'm in and how am I contributing to it? And how am I taking from it? I, I mean, it was interesting because somebody, if you see on my cover of my book, there's a Buddha, Chinese Buddha, the Chinese laughing Buddha. And for those that don't know, Killing Buddha is based on a very famous Zen cone, which is written by uh, the Chan Buddhism founder, Linji, Chinese, by the way. And he says, embrace nothing. If you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. Life, sorry, live your life as it is, not bound to anything. Um, And that's really the journey. That's what I do in this book is really extrapolate what that means on my, for me on my level. And it was interesting because somebody said, well, that's cultural appropriation. And I said, well, I can see how you would see that. But the rules of cultural appropriation are, you know, like if I'm going to use a Chinese Buddha, the reason I chose the Chinese laughing Buddha is because Linji is Chinese. And so I wanted to keep it within the right culture because technically Buddhism came from a little teeny tiny province in India. So if, the, if you want to go with some people's current definition of cultural appropriation, then nobody but those people in India should be practicing Buddhism. But that's not what that's not what Buddha wanted or anybody wants. We wanted to get it out there. The other thing is in the very first page, I credit where this comes from. I, I honor this is where I got this, and this is where it comes from, and this is its lineage, and this is its history. And then I say, this is what I think about it. So, you know, it's not that, I mean, I think people are becoming too caught up in this notion of like, you know, (laughs) if I wear a braid, I'm cultural appropriation and now I can never wear braids. I think we have to loosen it up a little bit, but I do think we really need to like get into understanding the depth of these practices because if we do that, they actually mean more. Since I've been really digging deep on this stuff for myself, it's it's meant more to me more powerful, more potent. Like respecting the roots of it. In a way, what we've done in America is we've cut the roots and said, look what we made. Yeah. 
and and to go back to the roots and to create that connection of deep respect and deep honor and that we can grow from the roots we can grow new flowers we can expand and create and when we separate from the roots we get in trouble you know i see this i was raised in asia and I can't even explain it, but the difference of being, especially when I was younger, before Western culture had hit Asia, around Thai people, let's say, where I you know, mostly grew up, the depth of absolute in their body connection, family, spirit that was ingrained yeah. was so deep. And then I came to the States and I'm like, what is wrong with people? And what I realize now is like we're meditating, but we're meditating to get out. Right. Instead of meditating. Or to get. Yeah. To get something. Mm-hmm. I'm meditating because I'm going to get some download. Like even that's become like a thing. And, you know, I, I think you're so right about that. Like just how that's what I, for me, I feel so much more connected and grounded because I've really gone back and it was like, what is the story of Ganesha? What is the story of the laughing Buddha? Where it's the fun about the laughing Buddha and Linji is that they're both rebels. And what I, it's funny because I didn't know much about them. I heard this quote 15 years ago and it's stuck in my head. And I thought, that's how I just started examining it. And then when I started reading about Linji and I was like, Linji is this rebel and he's, he's irreverent and he, he, his teachings were always like this, kill the Buddha. Like it just the, people would always be like, Linji, you can't say things like this, right? And I thought how funny that I would attract to Linji because that's how I am, right? So it, once I learned all about Linji and then I was like, got to put a Buddha on the cover. I got to do this laughing Buddha because he was also, people, you know, he's not really Buddhist. He's too funny and goofy and, 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 and kind of a rebel. And I thought, there's a whole, so like, you know, it's, I hope people have a better appreciation of the book and the cover now, because what did they just learn? They learned all this interesting stuff about the people and the characters and why it all, all makes sense, because this whole book is irreverent. So it's like, of course, it's got to be Linji because he was, you know, a troublemaker. And that's what the book is about in a lot of ways. The characters are all troublemakers and they laugh and they, they break the rules and they, they go on a spiritual journey and do things they shouldn't be doing, you know, and breaking shit, and, you know, setting fires and all sorts of stuff. So just by learning about these people and these characters and why that particular quote from Linji meant so much more to me, it, it made so much, it was so much better, right? Than if I just heard the quote and sort of slapping it around and didn't really know the origin or what it meant or what the teachings were. It was so much better. And it's that holistic, including all of it and weaving it through then in your way. Yeah, so good. Yeah, that's what's fun. I mean, just like going, even going into Teo. You know, the first time I went to Teo, I took everything that I was told on its face value. Second time I went to Teo, I started looking at, looking up and reading about all the different statues and pyramids, I can think of the word, and those kinds of things. And what, what was really going on? And then the third time I went to Teo, I got an opportunity to go underneath. They were just digging out underneath the sun. And 
it's a whole different layer. And that was when they were learning, or at least that's what the guy told us at the time was like, wow, we feel there may have been a matriarchy leadership here. So you learn so much more. And then you start to really question, well, like, wait, if they, we've been told there was, there was always the patriarchy, always the patriarchy, but there was a matriarchy. What did that look like? It just makes the teachings. And then you come back up and you listen to you or whoever's teaching and you've got your interpretation of it, right? Of what it is. But then the depth of it, at least for me, had so much more meaning because I, I understood the the ground i understood the energy is so much it coming in it was like yes you can feel energy but now i now i could literally hear the ground speaking because i i took time to under to learn about the ground instead of just walking on it looking for my own healing i took time to go well ground tell me what your story and the story is my story and that's when the healing really starts to happen and it's that journey of so often of, you know, we learn something either through a book or through a video or through a teacher or through whatever. And we take that at face value. Okay, this is the way it is. And what I hear you saying over and over again and Lin G and like the, that place of always look deeper. Yeah. Don't take it at face value. And that quote, kill it, you know, kill the Buddha. If you meet the Buddha in the road, kill the Buddha. I know some people that are like horrified because like that's so disrespectful and it's so violent. And why would you do that? It's a profound teaching because yeah. it's that constant. Remember, the Buddha is a symbol. Mm-hmm. The Buddha is not the, the way. It's not the, the Buddha is a symbol. Everything's mm-hmm. a symbol. Well, and the Buddha can be changed. The Buddha can be, if you, there's a longer teaching where he goes on to say, if you meet your mother, kill your mother, if you meet your father. Because just like we said a few minutes ago, what we do is somebody gives us wisdom and then we attach onto them and hug them and hold onto them for dear life. And then we can't get any more wisdom because we're too busy holding onto this person, waiting for them to give us more wisdom. And sure, they might give us a few pieces, but if if we make them our Buddha, that's it. There's no more growth going to happen. And also the inverse. So often we decide that person's wrong. They're a different political party. They're a different religion. Therefore, there's, not, there's no wisdom to get from them. Right. And so we yeah. close down or somebody makes a mistake and we hold them to that mistake for the rest of their lives instead of letting them evolve. Yeah. Or ourselves. Well, that's true. That's the same thing. People, you know, I've said before to someone recently, how can I change if you won't let me? No matter what I do, you're only going to see this. Because one of the things that, I, to go back to the bleep, you know, I do have this regret and I, and I wish there was a better way we could have done it. You know, the big buzzword from what the bleep was, you create your reality we create a reality. But if you go back and you watch Bleep Again, and I've had people do this, we don't say like you're a magician and you're magically creating your reality. Now, technically in science, that's kind of true. But what we were really trying to say, I think we should have done a better job is we do create a reality and that we get to create our perception of it. We get to decide how we feel about it. And that's, in a way, why, for instance, like expert, like, like eyewitness testimony in like 
certain trials for, um, you know, criminal cases or even car accidents, people tend to not, they, they don't like that as much because five people that will see the same thing and see it completely differently because of their bias or their perspective. They've done studies where they would ask you a math question and the math, the answer was really like two plus two equals four. But the study is they would write it in. You have two Republicans and two Democrats and the Republicans want to be happy and they want they're going to vote for six and the Democrats are going to vote for three. What's the math answer? And depending upon their political alignment, they will answer. They will more likely answer the question wrong than then because it fits with their bias than to actually answer the question right. So how we perceive is how we live in the world more so than am I creating this chair that I'm sitting on or did I go buy it at Target? You know, more than likely I'm creating mass to mass, but I'm, I'm, my experience is I like this chair because obviously I bought it. So I must have, have, I liked it. So, you know, that's, there's the difference. Yeah. And I was talking with a friend of mine recently who had a, a difficult experience in their life. And what they were saying to me is, well, I must have created this. And I don't, why did I create this? And I was like, stop, yeah. stop. That kind of is my fault. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I mean, like, that's one thing I think the film, we didn't do a good enough job explaining. It's like, it's not your fault. That's where the f- blame thing comes in. Now people are running around what, feeling shitty because they had a car accident and somehow it's all their fault, you know? Yes. Yeah. But I don't think that's your fault or even the film's fault. It's the, it's the, the, the dream culture. that we're in of grabbing yeah. it and putting it into good, bad, right, wrong. Mm-hmm. If I'm perfect, the same meme, if I'm perfect, then that will reflect out here. And, right. and what you're saying is really accurate and I think that is what the film was portraying. It's just really easy to flip it because of what yeah. our, our tendency is as humans right now. Instead of that, it, that happened, what do I want to do with it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. what I remind everybody now and myself, it's like, if you're using it against yourself, I don't care how good the teaching is. You're using it against yourself. Stop. Yeah. Well, and there's no place to go from that. That's the part that like, you know, we talked about in the the bleep this, why does this keep happening to me? When you can look at, for me, I've had so much more growth around why my life is the way that it is. When I started, when I stopped blaming myself for going, God, I'm really, you know, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at that. Like I used to say I'm terrible at men because I've been married twice and, and I'm just like, I'm terrible at men. So I kind of said, you've got to stop saying that, you know, you just have not made the best choices because you get caught, you, you get caught up or whatever it is. And that's all fixable. It's all actually really easy to fix if you want to, but if you, if you still screw it up, you still screw it up. You know, there's only so much we can do, but when we, when we, when we stop blaming ourselves for everything and we stop letting other people, like I wrote something the other day on Facebook and uh, be careful if you write on my Facebook page, cause I'll answer me. And so I was having a really shitty day about something and I ranted on Facebook about it. And a couple of people started coaching me. Well, why do you think you're creating that reality? What is it that you need to learn from this experience? They got to be careful with me because I'm a sassy mouth. And I just, in a, a couple of them, I politely said, thanks. If I, when I want your coaching, I'll ask for it. Yeah. Back off, bitch. It's just like, you know, because one of the other problems is, and I learned this from my 
my daughter, we were just talking about her earlier. I, I had a, I was a little bit of a toxic positivity girl for a while, especially when my kids are little, you know, you always want the mindset and the positive attitude. Right? And my daughter was like eight or nine and she was pissed about something. And she was mad and stomping and yelling. And I looked at her and I said, well, you know, what's the good that can come of this? And she turned around and looked at me and she said, you know what? I just want to be mad. And I was, it's like energetically slammed me back up against the wall. And I thought, wow, I'm totally teaching her to shove down her anger and not learn how to process it. Cause I want her to pretty get, what's the, what's the, what are you grateful for? Right. And that was the moment of my going, I need, I need to learn how to be mad. I need to learn how to go. I don't, there's, you know, and, and what I've realized is the more willing I am to be present in how I feel and to just process how I feel, then actually later I can look back and go, that's what I needed to learn that. Uh, okay. You know? Yeah. It's so much the learning so much about looking back with, with different eyes and then moving forward rather than in the moment, I'm going to try and control my emotions and make it look the way I think it should look. Right. Well, because then, then you get it wrong. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. Because you're right. You look back with a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. A wider lens, you know, because in the moment it's this, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you can do at the time. Right. I, I know for me, when I was going through rough divorce, and the, the life-changing moment was when I decided, and I remember doing this really consciously, this is going to be messy. And I'm going to let it be messy. Me, let, that being me. Because there was this moment where I was like, oh my God, my community is leaning on me. I'm a public figure. How am I going to get through this? And I had this moment of like, okay, I'm just going to pretend like it's fine. And I luckily at that moment, I had learned to like pause and really check in. And I was like, this would be the worst disservice to myself and to my community. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, it was it was rough and it was perfect because in that moment, I was able to be human. Yes. Be human. Just like, yes, I'm grieving. Yes, this is connected to a lot of other stuff I haven't handled yet. And now I'm going yeah. to. There's a crack. I'm going in. And I had people later come to me and say, Heather Ash, we didn't want you to be in pain. Like we were praying that you wouldn't be in pain because if you were in pain going through a divorce, that meant that we were going to be in pain going through our life. And I'm like, yep, things are painful sometimes. That's life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the important thing. I think we, you asked earlier about, you know, is the guru on the stage breaking down? And I think it is because the curtain's being pulled back on a lot of these people and we're seeing their ugly parts or the parts that they've hidden and people get angry because they've been sold a perfection story and then when they realize it's very interesting there's a girl i can't remember her name right now she wrote girl wash your face and yes. um right Hollis. she's yeah. she's going through it right now something fierce and you know, in a way I look at it and I go, well, she did this to herself because she didn't, she doesn't want to be seen in the, the way in, in full vulnerability. Like she was in the beginning in her original work. And that happens to people. 
um, where a lot of people will start out really authentic and vulnerable, then they'll get really successful. And then all of a sudden they've got to put up this facade and that's where the danger comes out. And that's what's happening to her now. She had this facade and the truth came out and, and, you know, I, I hope, I hope she gets humble and learns from it. But also I look at the people that are mad at her and they're throwing out so much of the stuff that was great about what she did. And I go, so this is, this is the cycle that we get into over and over and over again. It's like, we build them up, we tear them down. We build them up, we tear them down. I just decided to always be torn down. That was just so much easier. So that's why I'm like, you know what? I'm just torn down. You can't, you can't tear me down any farther. Trust me. You can try, but it doesn't, at this point, it doesn't bother me. So, and that's the, and part of it is saying that life sucks sometimes. There's a, my favorite quote in the world is by Jack Kerouac. And he says, be in love with your life, every detail of it. And when I was going through my divorce, I read that quote. I was reading Jack Kerouac's book. And I said, oh, man, I wish I could be that. And then I thought, well, you can be that. It just means that you have to, because he didn't say be in love with your life, be happy. He said, be in love with your life, every detail of it. And what I finally realized is that meant I have to be in love with my life, even when it sucks. And so that became my practice as I was going through my divorce. Um, it's funny at the end of tipping sacred cows, they're like, you have to have a practice or a meditation. I'm like, I, I want practice. So I wrote a practice, a game called my life sucks that people can play. And, um, because I was like, I need to learn how to be in love with that detail. And I have found that the more in love I am with the dark shadow parts of the, my reality, the bright sunny days are so much better. And that was, that's just been a big practice of mine for a long time, being in love with my life, every detail of it. That is such deep, deep wisdom. From Jack Kerouac, right? Like, it, such yes. a, I mean, it could have come from Bukowski too, but no, it was Jack Kerouac. But so I, I love that it was from him. It wasn't from some like guru or anything, you know, Jack Kerouac, whiskey drinking, whatever he is, you know, exactly. womanizing. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think that that, I'm trying to figure out how to put this into words. It's like, that's your spiritual practice. That became your spiritual practice. And sometimes people do the same thing. Like, what's your spiritual practice? And I'm like, being aware and living. Like, yeah. Uh, breathing. <laughs> breathing is a spiritual practice. No. Oh, you take breaths. I'm like, no, just normal, breathe, like breathing. Yeah. 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 I, I meditate while I pee because that's about the only time I have sometimes. So, you know, yeah, people get very caught up in that. But I do say that it's like, it's, for me, like every morning I get up and I do a little ritual and I light a candle and I have an altar and I love those things. And then part of it is making my coffee. And like, it's not this, like I sit on a cushion and meditate. I've never been a good meditator. The minute I sit down to meditate, like I either fall asleep or I'm like, you know, squirrel. So, you know, I tend to a garden, you know, I, I grow food and I tend to my plants and I talk to them and or I brush my cat, but it's just for me, giving yourself that time of just quiet connection with something that's the spiritual practice and there is no right one like you could say my spiritual practice is you know riding motorcycles or shooting guns I mean some people love to go out and shoot targets I mean 
you know, get whatever that is that brings you back into that connection. Yeah, do it. But absolutely. absolutely. You don't have to wear Lululemons. You don't have to go to that yoga studio. But I need a mala, right? A really expensive mala. <laughs> exactly. You don't need any of that. Um, you know, I jokingly, because sometimes I'm really, my life is always feast or famine financially. <laughs> and um, I'm old enough now where I have accumulated a few good crystals, but I don't really have a lot of those like Jack Norrie, you because someone's house and got this. But, so I just decided to collect rocks and those are my crystals. So whenever I go somewhere, I take a rock and instead of having some big ginormous amethyst, I have these rocks and they, they're my crystals because they represent like just such interesting journey and joy and adventure and the frequency of whatever land. I have one from the Rio Grande, I have one up, like all over the place. And so, and they're all free because I just take them. I hope nobody minds, but you know, I take the rocks and I, I mean, I've literally flown home from Santa Fe with a rock this big in my suitcase. I mean, I wonder what the people at TSA must have been thinking because, like, she's just this is just a gray rock. But you know, that's my that's that's part of my like spiritual practice and is taking the rock and going. I love this energy of the rock, you know. And then bringing it all together. I was just laughing because I have an altar at home that I. When I moved to New York City a, a few years ago, I purged everything except for books and rocks, basically. Right. And like the most precious things, I like I unpacked all my rocks recently, and it was the biggest like homecoming. Hello, friends. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I I did get a when I sold everything to go to South America, I got rid of a lot of my rocks, but I kept a few of the really good ones. <laughs> I figure I can get more, but. Yeah, so the idea is that you don't, you know, if you can't afford afford the four foot, you know, rose quartz rock that's eighteen thousand dollars, like you just because the thing that I talk about in tipping sacred cows a lot is like that most of the stuff is kind of made up, like almost all of it is, and it's all based on what you put meaning into. So if if you decide or you have this rock or you all of a sudden are drawn to crystal work and that kind of work, that's because it's gotten that's your meaning you're putting on it. So you could decide tomorrow to put your meaning on something else, but really we're, that's how we are creating our reality. You know, it's not that the rock or the crystal has meaning to give you. Like I, I always tease, I love doing tarot. I love read, pulling cards. Right. But I don't ever read what's inside the book. I just look at the card and then I figure out what it's telling me. I'm like, what is it telling me? And it's in like, I could pull that same card five days in a row and the meaning will be different because I realize it's the only meaning that will matter is the one that I put on it. So before somebody, sometimes I like to go see what the book said after I do that, but I wait because if somebody tells me what it means, then I'm going to make up all that. Whereas if I just, I got this card. Oh, there's a dog. Maybe I should feed my dog. Oh, there's a dog and a cat and flowers. And Oh, what is it? Oh, that's a lot of life. Maybe, you know, I can find my own meaning in it. And that that's more meaningful to me than, you know, this is what this crystal means. And this is only what it means. And this is what you have to do with it. And this is how, you know, that's me. The gift I think is of showing up in a dance with life Mm -hmm. and seeing that everything is sacred and that everything has messages. And so if we, if we think like, okay, the only thing that is going to open your heart is this rose quartz 
then we're limiting life. I mean, who made that up? Yeah. Versus, oh my God, this beautiful gray rock that I just found. And it just op- naturally opens your heart because that's what drew you. And you don't have to explain or make it extra special. It's just this one opens my heart. This tarot card today means this to me. That's us in relationship and dancing with life instead of trying to put life in little boxes and make everything separate. And this is more sacred than this. Exactly. Everything's sacred. And and when you start doing that, you give yourself time to listen in. And that's when the real message is the real ones. No, I mean, I, I have no, nothing against tarot card boxes with the books. I love them. Many of my friends have made them. I think they're gorgeous. I have some like Kelly Walden. I think you made one. Didn't you make one? I have yours. I like, they're stunning. Right. And they're beautiful. I love them for that. But I think the more I'm just willing to close my eyes, pull the card and then sit with the card. That's when the true message comes. Not that, you know, that's when the real meaning, that's when I hear better. You know, which is why I'm pulling the card in the first place, I think, you know, to listen. Yeah. 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 Okay. One question, which is what about writing Killing Buddha surprised you? I will encourage and invite anyone to sit down and write your memoir, even if you're not going to publish it. Don't try to be a good writer. Just sit down and start writing the stories of your life, especially looking back, um, because the stories of this book started when I was a small child, Um, because a lot surprised me because I had a different perspective on each of those stories now, even that I did 10 years ago, right? So what surprised me was that at the time I was writing Killing Buddha, I was feeling really like a failure and lost and unsure about what I was supposed to do. And what I met was a brilliant, funny, resilient, powerful, creative human that has lived such an adventurous life. And that I am so humbled and grateful for it. Like, I almost cry thinking about, like, I look back and all the stories of my life and I go, this has been fucking awesome. Wow. And so that was the, my, for me, that was, that was a great gift. Cause now I can go forward into the future with more like, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like what, what's going on next with more fun and joy in it? Because the other thing you do when you look back is you see how many times you were so down on your knees and so broken and didn't believe you were going to survive. And then you did, and then you did, and then you did, and you bounced back and you came back and you survived that heartbreak or whatever it was. And uh, so it makes looking forward so much more joyful. There is something I'm, I'm writing a memoir right now and it's been mm-hmm. brilliant and painful. And I'm having that same experience that of just immense gratitude for every piece, like every piece yeah. of it is just so good. Even the worst parts that I would never wish on my worst enemy. And 
there's a way it's like almost like weaving all these pieces together that seemed really disparate that you re- that I've realized and maybe you've had this experience too like none of them were random or stray mm-mm, mm-mm. and it does give you this faith going forward because you're like all right who knows yeah but isn't that's the other thing is like I've always believed you know that's why we're here to do this thing nobody has a life like you no one will ever live your life. And that's what you're here to do. Because you living your life impacts other people living their lives. And we're all creating this crazy, wild, mind-blowing mosaic of a reality. And yeah, I totally get what you mean by the idea of thinking none of this fits together. A lot of times people will say to me, well, you write, you make movies and you do all these different things. And I'm like, they all have one thing in common, curiosity. I'm curious about how life works, how humans work. So whether I'm writing a book or painting a painting or, or whatever I'm doing, it, the media might be different, but the, the core journey and I, my core quest has always been the same ever since I was a little kid. And I think when we all get that, when we can see the, the breadth of our life and the, the energy that we carried as kids so often, if, when you look back and you see, oh, and there it is again, and there it is again, it doesn't matter what, the, what happened on the outside, there's this beautiful mm-hmm. thread mm-hmm. of our expression and our living in. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sit down and write it and enjoy it. Cause it's, it's your, it's, that's the gift to you to look back. I think, you know how they say in some circles, some spiritual groups per se, oh, you have a light review of your life when you die. Writing a memoir is sort of like having a pre-life light review, <laughs> you know? And I, again, I didn't call it a memoir. It's a novel because there's a lot of fictionalized stuff, mostly because I wanted a vehicle that I could, have license to, to make it make sense, to make it have a story, um, save some people from embarrassment, maybe not upset a few people. So, you know, sometimes if you want to write a memoir, write your memoir for yourself and then make it a novel. <laughs> yeah. Protect the innocent. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's exactly. a beautiful book. I, hope I, mean, tip- I was just saying, in Tipping Sacred Cows, it was more memoir. And by the way, if anybody signs up to my email list, they get Tipping Sacred Cows as a digital copy for free. Oh, great. So in the show notes, we'll put um, Betsy's website and ways that you can contact her. Tipping Sacred Cows is fantastic. So definitely get your digital copy. And everybody also go read Killing Buddha and be curious about... No, I always say two things with that book is that one, where do you take it seriously? Like yourself too seriously, because anybody that's on a spiritual path, that's one of the, the big things that self-importance that we get to break apart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and how do you see yourself as you're reading about somebody else's spiritual journey? You know, mm-hmm. fictionalized, non-fictionalized. We always get to see ourselves. Mm-hmm and the choices that we've made and the choices we would make differently. And again, when we bring humor into all of it, it makes it so much more delightful instead of I have to do this right 
we're here to make mistakes. We're here to try again. We're here to really learn to listen to that inner voice. And hopefully once we hear that inner voice, we realize what a delight life is. Thank you so much for sharing your light and your gifts and your heart and your humor and your sarcasm. I always take so much joy in the the Facebook and the posts that you make because they're always so fun. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And if you had one, one last thing to share, what would it be if you had one message or gift for people? Try the practice, be in love with your life, every detail of it. it. Try slowing every moment, as many moments in your day down to be in love with them. Because I just find that to me to be the greatest gift I've given myself in the last 10 years. Thank you. I love that one. Thank you. Yes. Blessings. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share it with a fellow warrior goddess. If you felt fully empowered and inspired by what you heard today, we want to know about it. You can share your feedback by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We thank you for your support. It's the fastest way to fuel the revolution. To learn more about the Warrior Goddess Revolution and other Warrior Goddess offerings, visit us at www.warriorgoddess.com.